Good morning. Good morning. Man, I was trying to figure, is my mic not on? Are we just asleep? Hey, it's really good to see y'all. Good to see your faces. Um, and, uh, and welcome this morning. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name is Jeff Nine. I'm one of the pastors here. And, uh, and, and it's just a, it's great to be with you this morning. Um, if you're a visitor here, welcome. We'd love to get to know you. Uh, this, I'll just say this straight up. We're a church that there's no question off limits. So any question you have, any, any uh, things that you're thinking, uh, feel free to ask. And we'd love to talk with you about that. And I want to say especially, if you're here and you're not a Christian, thank you for being here. And I mean that really, really seriously. Um, it's uh, it's it can feel awkward stepping into a room when you think that you may be the only one that doesn't believe a certain way or, or do the same way. And I just want to say this place is a place where whether or not where you are on uh, your understanding of Jesus, uh, this is a place for us to all come and be welcomed and get a chance to ask questions and process doubts and process skepticisms and, and stuff. And you may go, uh, I got a lot of questions after that reading that she just gave because that sounded weird. Uh, and, and this text this morning is, let's just be honest, a little bit weird. But here's what I want to say. I, I, I think if we stop, slow down, and look at this text, it's not just going to teach us something about other people. It's actually going to speak something very specifically to frontline Yukon. And so I want us to engage this, and I want us to hear what God would say to us. But here's the thing. We need God to speak to us. You don't need me you know, through just regurgitating some commentaries, we need God himself to speak to us through his word as his people. So I'm going to pray, and I'm going to ask you to pray, and let's ask God to speak to us this morning. So God, would you change us? Would you teach us? Would you form us? Would you lead us to be like your son? I, I pray, God, that you would not just speak uh, generally to the church, but you would speak to us at Frontline Yukon, that we would hear from you today, that we'd be changed, that we might become more like you. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As Chad preached last week, he, he reintroduced, if you're new to us, uh, we've been walking through the gospel of Mark, the, 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 essentially the account of Jesus' life and ministry through the eyes, through the pen of Mark, but this is really through the eyes of the disciple Peter, who Mark studied under and was trained by. And we've been walking through this for a little while. The last time we were preaching through Mark was a text that we actually talked about before Thanksgiving. And so what we're doing is what we're talking about today actually picks up immediately immediately after where we left off right before Thanksgiving. Now, if, if you remember, or maybe you weren't here, let me give a, a recap real quick. The Gospel of Mark talks about who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And the first half of the book is primarily focused around his ministry around Galilee, where he grew up and in some of the surrounding areas. Uh, he did miracles, and he taught, and he confronted religious leaders, and he healed those that were sick, and he did all these incredible things and all of these confusing things, and there were a number of people that wanted to follow him and a number of people that wanted to have nothing to do with him. But, but about partway through Mark... The, 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 whole time, the whole tenor of the book shifts as Jesus moves from doing ministry in Galilee primarily and turns his eyes to head to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem is the center of the life of Israel. It is where everything happened. And Jesus is going there, but as he's going there, the disciples might be excited because in, in, many, in many cases, many, some of these disciples had maybe never been to Jerusalem before. 
But as they go, Jesus starts saying some things that really caught them off guard. So you see, they thought Jesus was going to be this promised one who was going to rescue Israel and restore them to prominence. But as they head to Jerusalem, Jesus begins to say things like this. We're going to Jerusalem. They're going to kill me. And three days later, I'll rise again. And they're like, what? I mean, hey, hey, you're supposed to be the one that wins. You don't die. And they had no concept of what a resurrection would look like. So they're confused. And they they don't understand. But as they get towards Jerusalem, this is where we were last week. As they walk into Jerusalem, they're met by a crowd of people that are adoring Jesus as he goes into the city. And you can only imagine what's happening in the disciples' minds of who is this Jesus? What are we about to step into? Is this going to be a good week or a bad one? Well, see, they're entering Jerusalem at Passover. If you're not familiar with Passover, it is the largest celebration or the largest um, uh, holy day in the Jewish calendar. And people would pilgrim it or would take pilgrimages to Jerusalem for Passover. The pass- Jerusalem that may only have a couple tens of thousands of people on it normally would be inundated with hundreds of thousands of people coming in. Matter of fact, Josephus, the, the first century historian, tells us that uh, during about this time, upwards of a quarter million sheep were bought, sold, and slaughtered as sacrifices during Passover in Jerusalem. Now, you can imagine uh, the, the chaos that comes with a quarter million sheep. Add to that the, all the people, all the smells, and all the other animals, right? It's a mess. Jerusalem is, is crazy at this point. This, this is Jesus entering Jerusalem, but not just coming to Jerusalem at, at any old time. He's coming at peak of all of these people coming to Jerusalem. It's loud. It's busy. It's smelly. And so in this week, Jesus comes, but what we see is what Jesus is about to do is an action that is more public than anything he has done before. See, he spent a lot of time teaching a few people. Maybe he would have a couple thousand people hear him talk. This, this is the first time he's come in when Jerusalem is popping, and all of a sudden he does something that everybody takes notice of. It's also worth remembering and worth noting is this. What Jesus does here in the temple, this story, is likely the very inciting event that, that, that triggered his death on the cross merely days later. It is what Jesus does right here at the temple that threw the religious leaders over the end where they were tolerating this man to now saying we have to kill him. So this, what we're looking at this morning matters a lot. You see, at first glance, these stories just seem weird, don't they? It, it, it kind of sounds like Jesus is just having a really bad day. I mean, you wake up and you're hangry because there wasn't any breakfast. And the, the Airbnb ran out of toast and, and you're a little hungry and you're walking up and you see this tree and you go, hey, that, that looks like a fruit tree. I'm going to go get some fruit. And then it doesn't have fruit on it. And you're like, ah. <laughs> and then you walk into the, you walk into the temple you walk into the temple and, and Jesus doesn't like what's happening there. And so what does he do? He makes a whip and he starts running people out and throwing tables and yelling. And the disciples are probably like, I, I don't know, Boomer. I, what are you doing here? I, I don't understand what's happening here. Uh, and, and then later they go back by this, they, they, they go back out of the city and then Jesus just tells them how bad they are at praying. It's kind of, kind of what it feels like on first glance, doesn't it? 
That's not remotely actually what's happening. You see, these are not disjointed stories that just got happened to throw together. Like Mark was just remembering them in weird sequence and th- threw them down. He actually is very, very intentional in putting these two pieces, these things together. There's actually a literary device in, in this time frame that was very, very common in which you would take two, two parallel stories and sandwich another story in between, and the point is to point towards the middle. In other words, you would have, uh, you would have, one, you, you would have one story, a second story, and a third story, and the first and the third parallel each other and point to the second. In other words, what's happening with the fig tree is supposed to point our attention to what happens in the temple and is also there to explain it. It's, this is a literary device. So what seems confusing to us is actually very intentional to the original reader. So here's what I want to do. I want to start where this text is pushing us, which is to that middle section. I want us to look at Mark 11, starting in verse 15. Let's look at this. And they, Jesus and the disciples, came to Jerusalem. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them and saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers." And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him, for they feared him because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. And then evening came and they went out of the city. You see, the temple in Jerusalem was two things for the people of Israel. It was the center of their religious life. Everything that they did religiously happened in and around or was centered. The, the center of gravity for what they did was anchored in the temple and it was also the symbol of national identity. Remember, Israel right now is no longer a mighty nation. They're a people scattered inside the Roman Empire, ruled by from, from those from outside. So the center of religious life is found in the temple, but it's also the symbol of their national identity. But if we look at the Old Testament, we see that the temple of God was created by God, instituted by God, ordained by God to be two things, a place of encounter and a place of prayer. A place of encounter and a place of prayer. See, the temple was where God himself dwelled and where people came to encounter God. They came in worship because God was holy. They came and encountered his justice. They came and encountered his mercy. They came with sacrifice and And this was a place in which they would actually worship their God. But it was also a place of prayer. It was a place where they would worship, where they would sacrifice, where they would repent, and where they would pray for the nations, intercede for others. That's what the temple was supposed to be. It was also not only intended for Israel. That where, where all of this activity actually takes place is what's called the, the court of the Gentiles. It was actually the only place in which people that weren't Jews were able to come in and worship God. But what has happened is it is so busy and so full that they're, they're not able to pray there anymore. In other words, what Jesus is actually pointing to is that while the temple had a purpose and a vision, it in his day had lost that. 
The temple was no longer functioning like it was supposed to function. It was no longer this place that was built or that was functioning the way that God intended for it to be. In Isaiah 56, God even tells us that, that the temple was, to bring, was a space where the foreigner was supposed to be able to come in and it was meant to be a house of prayer for all the nations. We just saw Jesus allude to that. But it wasn't that anymore. It wasn't that anymore. This court of the Gentiles where those that were far from Yahweh and that were not Jews were supposed to come in and be able to worship God couldn't worship God there because it was full of all the trappings of religious activity. You see, the the buying and the selling and the trading and all the things that are happening here were actually for the temple. It was for the sacrifices that were going on. But Jesus looks through that and he calls it a den of robbers. Now to us, we go, okay, why does he say that? Well, for, for a Jew alive at that moment, they, their ears perked up immediately because they remembered what Jeremiah had prophesied in Jeremiah 7. Look at this. He says, this is God speaking to Israel, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that, have, that, that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, we are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Do you see what's happening here? Jesus walks into the temple and is saying, you have become what you never intended to be. In fact, you have become the very thing that this, the prophet Jeremiah prophesied against. You see, Jeremiah was a prophet that was known in Israel. They knew his words. And Jesus is saying what he spoke, he didn't speak to those people. He speaks to you. You have made this a den of robbers. And Jesus is not going to sit by idly while the temple, the place of encounter with God, is desecrated. So all that's happening here is public and it's a prophetic declaration of what God meant and what God intended. So now what's going on with this fig tree? Because if, if we understand that the, liter, the literature, the fig tree is actually to, to point to and explain what's happening. Uh, do you remember when Jesus was, doing, was teaching in parables earlier on in Mark? He would, he would say this story that most people would kind of scratch their head with and go, I don't, I don't quite understand what you just said. And then he would pull the disciples to, uh, aside and they would have questions and he would explain it to them in ways that maybe the public didn't understand. It's pretty much what's happening with this fig tree. What, what, what Jesus does in the temple, he intends for the whole nation to see and to hear. And then he pulls his disciples aside. And through this prophetic action, he actually explains more clearly to them what's happening. Let's look at this. Mark 11, verse 12. On the following day, when they came to Bethany, he was hungry. Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf... He went to see if he could find anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to, to it, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples 
heard it. What in the world is going on here? Well, we, we, we're going we're gonna to say again here in a second that this tree withers. Like, is, he says a word, and within 24 hours, this thing is dead to the roots. This is the last miraculous action of Jesus before his death, burial, and resurrection. So of all the miracles that he has done in, the, in, in, in Mark up until now, this is the last one he will do, which tells you something of significance in it. And let's just, let's just name the obvious. Jesus is no dummy. He wasn't like, the tree, I thought it was going to have fruit. It tells us it wasn't the season for fruit. So this is not Jesus just getting hangry and getting upset and, 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 and blowing off on a, on a tree. This is Jesus stepping in and giving them a prophetic image. He's, a spout, he, he, he's here to say something about what happens because things get weird when they come back by the next morning. Verse 20, as they passed by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered them, have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. So what we get here is Jesus talking about this tree that has leaves, but no fruit. Leaves, but no fruit. Again, there are things that to us, that they don't just automatically jump off the page and we understand. But again, for the Jewish mind that is steeped in an understanding of the Old Testament, specifically the prophetic language, they, they know what he's referring to because regularly throughout the prophets, God likens Israel to a fig tree. It shows up in Jeremiah. It shows up in Hosea. It shows up in Micah and in other places. But there's this one particular uh, uh, verse in Jeremiah 8 in which Jeremiah says that God desired to bring Israel near to them when they were in their rebellion. Israel was rebellious and he longed to gather them towards him. He says, but he couldn't, and here's why, quote, no grapes were on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Again, what Jesus is doing in this prophetic act, in this miracle, is saying, hey, remember what Jeremiah said? Remember what Jeremiah said. What this tree represented was a tree that looked like it ought to promise fruit. It has leaves. It looks alive. And yet you get there and there's nothing to eat. And what Jesus is saying to the disciples, he's bringing clarity to the message. This is Israel. Israel promises much, but delivers nothing. Where, where Israel ought to be a place of encounter with the living God, ought to be a place of prayer, it has ceased to be those things. It offers no fruit to the hungry. And the fact that he speaks at a tree, and within 24 hours, it's dead to the root, speaks to his authority, because what he does in the temple, you don't get to do unless you're in charge. So what Jesus is doing with the story of the fig tree is both bringing clarity and authority to the situation. Does that make sense? Does that help explain a little bit of what's going on? One real quick note on the prayer, because you're like, wait, why does he go off on prayer? Well, where they are matters. They're on the Mount of Olives. When he says in the prayer to pray that, that, that you could pray with faith that this mountain would be removed and cast into the sea. They can see the Dead Sea from there. What would happen if you removed a mountain? 
No more mountain, right? That was very obvious. It's now flat. It's not hilly. It's flat. Again, in the Jewish mind, they remember immediately the words of Zechariah 14. See, in Zechariah, there's a promise that when the king comes, when God himself comes to his kingdom and establishes his kingdom, that he will stand on the Mount of Olives and it will split under his feet and be leveled like a plain. What he is saying with this prayer is God's kingdom will come to bear and it will bring stark change. And he says, pray for that. It will happen. So all these pieces are connected. But the reason all this matters is that Israel had lost sight of who, what the kingdom of God was and what the temple of God was supposed to be. Now, Jesus could have just stepped in and tried to go, hey guys, let me, let me give you some pointers. Not supposed to do that with the temple. Hey, why don't you move that stuff outside? Why don't you do this different? He could have done all that, but that's not what happened, did it? As a matter of fact, the very thing that he withers, the, that, he, that he curses the tree and it withers to the root says something more profound is happening than simply God, or that Jesus is bringing renewal to the temple. It speaks to something kind of deeper than that, Right? Like you're left with this anticipation of something more is coming. Something deeper is coming. And, and that is, in fact, what happened because what we see in the rest of the New Testament is that Jesus is not just coming to reform the temple, he's coming to replace it. Jesus doesn't just come in to reform or renew the temple, he actually comes to replace it. It's worth at, this, worth at this moment thinking just a little bit ahead in where we're going to go in Mark. Here in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about this passage in more detail. But when Jesus is on the cross, so Jesus has been beaten. He's been thrown on the cross. He is in the midst of dying at this moment. And, and, and in Mark 15, we get these words as people are deriding him as they walk by. So he's publicly dying in front of them. And Mark 15, 29 says this. And those who passed by him derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And you're like, that's just a weird taunt, isn't it? It's just a weird taunt. Except that in this very story that we're talking about, where Jesus cleanses the temple, it also is talked about in the Gospel of John chapter 2. Now, the reason it's at the beginning of John is that John is arranged theologically where Mark is arranged chronologically. But what John talks about in John 2 is the same encounter that Jesus has in the temple that we just read. And I think it's really important to go back to that and look at it. So look at, with me at John 2, verse 18. So Jesus has now cleaned the temple out. He has overturned the tables. He's ran the money changers out. He's been teaching, proclaiming, and the religious leaders are, let's just say, not happy. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, who gives you the right to do what you just did? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Now, the temple took a long time to build. And the Jews are like, you're insane and belong in an institution, Jesus. They say, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Look at verse 21. But he, Jesus, was speaking about the temple of his body. 
When therefore he was raised from the dead, the disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken to them. You see, what Jesus is doing in this encounter of the temple is actually bringing judgment on the temple and replacing it with himself. That instead of this physical temple in Jerusalem to be the place of encounter and the place of prayer, Jesus now steps in and says, I'm the place in which you encounter God and I am the one who teaches you to pray and leads you in prayer by my spirit and the one to whom you pray. And the promise of Hebrews is that he is praying for us even now. Jesus is the new temple. But if I continue reading in the New Testament, I see another new temple. You see, the the New Testament talks about us being united with Christ, being united with Jesus by faith such that we become his body. And then the New Testament begins to talk talk about the church. Those of us that are united to Jesus, the church becomes a new temple. Look Look at Paul's words in Ephesians 2. So then, you, speaking to the church, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, listen to this, in whom the whole structure, the structure of the temple, being joined together, grows into a holy temple to the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 6 says it this way. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we, speaking to the church, are the temple of the living God. As God says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And they will, I will be their God and they shall be my people. You see, what Jesus is doing in all of this moment is saying the temple is no longer the center of religious activity. I am. And then as we are brought in to be his body, his church, we become the temple. That's profound. That's no longer a a place, a a building that we go to. It's not even here at 10 West. I mean, this, this doesn't even look like a temple, does it? This is not the place But the people, as God works, he builds us together to be his dwelling place. Sam Storm says it this way in his book, Kingdom Come. God no longer lives in a tent of tabernacle built by human hands, nor will he ever. God's glorious manifest presence is not to be found in the ornate temple of marble, gold, and precious stones, but rather in Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God in human flesh, the one in whom God has finally and fully pitched his tent. It continues on a little bit later. He goes, but the story doesn't end there. We, the church, are the body of Christ and therefore constitute the temple to which God is pleased to dwell. He says, let me come straight to the point. Beginning with the incarnation in consummating with the resurrection of Jesus Christ, together with the progressive building of his spiritual body, the church, God is fulfilling his promise of an eschatological temple in which he will forever dwell. In other words, what he's saying is this. The temple in Jerusalem was never meant to be the end. It was meant to point to something greater. 
The temple was never meant to be the end all. We were never supposed to just terminate on worship in the temple, sacrifice in the temple. It was supposed to point us to a greater reality, a reality that is fulfilled ultimately in Jesus, but because of Jesus' work among us, also fulfilled in us. This is unbelievable truth. The church is called to be the temple, the place of encounter with God and the place of prayer. How often has the church failed to be that? How often have we been hurt in churches, by people in churches, who are not living up to what that vision is? Am I the only one? I don't think I'm the only one. And if we look historically at all the ways in which the church has failed, we may look at this and scoff. Because so often the church hasn't looked like the temple, like it ought to look. But it would also be really easy for us this morning to look at those people out there and those other churches out there and look at those other Christians in church history and say, what have they done wrong? And actually not step towards the invitation of this text for us. So in the time we have remaining, what I want us to do is stop and ask, if this Jesus that walked into that temple walked into Frontline Yukon, what might he say here? What might he say to us? You see, in the, in the book of Revelation, last book in the Bible, there's, in, in, the, in the first couple of chapters, there's this series of letters that Jesus himself writes to seven churches that were actually, a lot, that were actually real churches, physical or uh, uh, local congregations in Asia Minor, but they're indicative. They speak to them, but they also speak through them to the church at large of ways in which we are, we are sometimes good visions of the temple and sometimes we fail. And these letters are Jesus in love speaking to his people both words of encouragement and words of challenge. Words of encouragement and words of challenge. So here's the here's question I haven't been able to shake all week long. What would Jesus say to Frontline Yukon? Because, guys, guys, if we dodge that question, we dodge this entire text. If we fail to ask that question, we fail to ask the only question that matters. Because just as this temple was supposed to point people to God in Jerusalem and it failed, if we don't live towards what this vision means, we fail to be a pointer to God also. Now, before I really start meddling, let me say a couple of things. First is this is a question we need to always ask. We need to constantly, as a people, be asking this question. Are we actually looking like what God wants us to look like? And what is he calling us towards? It shouldn't be just occasionally as we, we come across a passage like this. This needs to be the constant prayer of the church. This needs to be the constant prayer of Frontline Yukon. Second, we need to ask God to speak to us. Because it's his church. We're his church. What would he say to us? We need to ask that with a lot of humility and a lot of desperation to hear from him. But third, we need to hear from one another 
and even hear from people outside because we have blind spots. This is why it's really important and wise to read from people even outside of our church speaking to the church at large because sometimes they end up speaking to us in ways that we might have missed otherwise. But with that said, I want, I want, to, I want to boldly, but with a little bit of trepidation, put a few things before us as one of your pastors. I'm not speaking authoritatively. I didn't get an email from God last night going, hey, say this to Frontline Yukon. This is as one of your pastors, what I sense might be some of the things that God would say to us. I just want to submit that. And with that, I want to say, this is not me speaking to you. I've been tore up by this question all week long. And what I'm about to say, I don't say to you, I say to us. And I'm as implicated as fast as anybody in this room. I think God would affirm much in this church. I do. I think he would affirm that we are overall, we are not perfect in this regard, but that we are a place that welcomes in people that are hurting and people from the outside. There's story after story after story of people that have come into this church with a lot of baggage and a lot of pain, and they have been wrapped up in love by this body. There have been people that have been a part of this church for decades that have been wrapped up and loved and served by this body. Not perfectly. We failed. But I, I do think that we are marked as a church as being a welcoming community that, that welcomes people from the outside and particularly moves towards those that are hurting. I, I think God would say that, say that word of affirmation for us. I think he would say that we love and serve one another really well. Again, I, not perfectly. But you guys are servants. When there are needs in this church, when there are hurting people, you guys move towards them with generosity and service. And I've just been blown away a story after story of, story, uh, of, of the ways in which we as a church have embodied this. I think he would, I think he would affirm that we're hard workers and we're diligent what he's given us to do. We, I mean, we planted a church in a pandemic. That wasn't easy. And we set up and tear down this space almost every week. That ain't easy. And if you think leading and hosting a community group is easy, you ain't done it yet. I, I do think that we are hard workers and we are diligent to try to do what God's given us to do in our city. I do. Have we done it perfectly? No, by no means. But I do think God would affirm us in these things. I think there's an honest, deep desire here to meet Jesus and to know him more and to follow him. I think that's real. Again, we don't do it perfectly, but I think we do that well. But with that said, I want to I give what I think are five challenges that I think, I think God would call us towards. The first is this. Frontline Yukon, I think we look a little bit too much like the culture and the world around us.
I think we are, in ways that we are not often aware, caught up so much in the consumeristic culture, the busyness culture, the I'm my own boss authority culture. I think we've been caught up so much in the numb out, veg out um, uh, approach of our culture that's just, that's just latching on for something to numb pain. that we begin to look a little bit too much like the world and less like our Lord. I think there's some areas where we need to acknowledge that we look more like what Jesus came to save us from than what he, called, what he came to save us to. There's this story in the Gospels of this rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and says to Jesus, hey, what, what might I do to have eternal life? And he says, well, tell me, what are, the, what are the commandments that God gave Israel? And he ratchets off the, the Ten Commandments, and Jesus is like, that's... And he, and he goes, I've done those. I, ever since I was a little kid, he goes, great. I want you to sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and come follow me. And the man left dejected because he's loved his stuff too much. And I think we, Frontline Yukon, are a little too much like, or a little more like the rich young ruler than we think we are. I'm not talking here about finances. I'm not talking about you guys aren't generous enough. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about there are things that we love that we don't want to let go of that God would ask us to let go of. I think we frontline Yukon look a little too much like the world. Second, I think, I think we lack some awe as it regards the God of transcendence. I think we are too casual in our worship. I don't, I don't just, I don't mean, you don't raise your hands enough. I don't, I don't mean that. I mean that we approach worship and approach God as a, as a body in some ways with this casual, well, it's just kind of normal. And there's something about this Bible Belt culture in which following Jesus has been easy. And sometimes we don't recognize the transcendence of who God is. And we're not captured by awe of who he is. And as such, we fail to point to the greatness of who he is. I think third, I would say that I, I do honestly think that as a church, we want to be a spirit-filled people and that we want to do that. But I do think that, that, that there are times and ways in which we as a church lack dependence on the spirit. We've gotten comfortable in doing ministry. And sometimes we get into these patterns of just doing things instead of being led by the Spirit day in and day out. Now, this is not a, I think we're horrible in every regard here, but I do think the Spirit, I think God would invite us to deeper dependence on the Spirit to longing more for his gifts, longing more for his presence. I think fourth, we have grown largely to be unexpectant when we pray. This one hit me really deep this week because just a week or two ago, I was praying with one of you I won't name uh, up here and the problem wasn't their faith, the problem was mine. I prayed in the back of my mind. I just, I just had this feeling like God's not going to answer this prayer. 
And it filled me with a lot of, a lot of shame and a lot of questions as to why I'd gotten to that point. If we are to be a people of prayer, we need to pray like God's on his throne. That doesn't mean that every single time he's going to answer, answer things miraculously. But you know what? Sometimes I forget the ways in which he has. And I have friends that are alive today because God miraculously healed them in ways doctors look at the records and they're like, I don't know what to make of it. One of our elders in the church had cancer one day. They prayed on a Sunday and the next doctor appointment that week had no cancer. It doesn't mean that God's always going to do that. But if we get to the point where we don't think he ever will, we're never going to pray with faith for his kingdom to come and be here. And lastly, I want to submit that we have grown unintentional in terms of both discipleship and evangelism. As a church... We've gotten so caught up in the busyness of planting a church and carrying on our lives in a pandemic. And let's just own, it's been crazy. But I think we've lost intentionality of pursuing what does it mean to follow Jesus and tell other people about him. Now, I think there's a lot of things that I haven't mentioned that would be said both as affirmation and as correction from God. And my prayer is that as a church, we lean in on that and ask him to continue to speak to us. Because I don't, I don't know, I've got my own blind spots. But I want us as a church to press in to, to, towards the vision of what does it mean for us to be a temple that points to our Savior. I don't want to just do church. I want to be a place in which people encounter the living God and find a people of prayer. I want us to be what God intended us to be as his temple. Now, we're never going to do it perfectly. And that was never the hope of the world. Jesus didn't say the hope of the world is that the church will figure it out one of these days. The hope of the world is Jesus himself. And so when we as a church are, are wrestling with these things, what we don't do is go home and just try to fix ourselves, make ourselves better, and then come back and go, Jesus, is that better? We come to Jesus as the temple. He is our temple. He is the one in which we encounter a God of mercy. He is the one that we come to and are, are welcomed in. And the reason that all those sheep were being bought and sold and slaughtered in Jerusalem was because they were bringing these sacrifices to, to make atonement for their sins. And Jesus would put an end both to the temple and to the sacrifice when he became both of them. Now what Jesus is going to do in the chapters to come in Mark is he's going to move towards his, his, this, this cross in which he will be brutally killed. God the Father will raise him back from the dead and, 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 and give, put life back into him that he then gives to us as he becomes he becomes our sacrifice. He becomes the one that purifies us from our sin. So we come to him with our failure, with our sin, and ask him to forgive us, and he 
will. But Frontline Yukon, we need to, as a people, constantly be pressing in and walking in the way of repentance and trusting that Jesus is our hope. Our hope isn't that we're going to be a perfect church. Our hope is that our God is a perfect God.